So I wanted to start this morning by first of all mentioning, uh, before I launch into this week's message, that I heard from a few of you that last week's message and the response time was a little bit of a challenge for you. Um, And I understand, if you weren't here last week, um, I talked about blind spots and how we all have blind spots, and I urged people, I gave everyone a bit of a challenge before we went into communion to potentially turn to their spouse or go to someone in the church and, and, and apologize for their blind spots. Um, and I know, I, I want you to know, I understand that was not necessarily an easy thing to do. I actually got off the stage and had to apologize for some blind spots to my husband. Um, it's not easy. And I also know that you can't work out all your marital troubles and interpersonal troubles, um, you know, in a couple seconds before you take communion, right? Uh, I understand that. Um, but here's my hope <coughs> for that, and I hope it will continue from that moment, which is, first of all, that, that we all need to recognize and admit sometimes that we have blind spots. And I think we often don't. <laughs> we often assume the other person has the blind spots. And so that's the first thing. I hope that that sort of stays with us, that we start to say, uh-huh, wait, maybe I have a blind spot here. Um, And then the second thing, I hope that it was the start, at least, of some healing conversations in your marriages and your relationships. It wasn't actually just for marriages. Um, Single people can have blind spots, for sure. We all have them, whether it's with our moms and dads, our siblings, our friends, um, our family members. And so I hope for all of us, we will, you know, ask the Lord to awaken us and open our eyes to some of our own blind spots. And the last thing I'll just say about that was it was communion, and I think it was actually a good time, and it's something I want to continue to emphasize, just the importance and the power uh, of of the communion. Yeah, would you just stand there the whole time? <laughs> that way I can gesture. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Whoops. Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, that's how it goes, right? Now at least we know this won't go out. So the last thing I just wanted to say about communion is just the power and the transforming power of communion, that it's important uh, and solemn moment for us. I was just recently visiting another friend uh, who's a pastor here in Greensboro and seeing I was in his church, and they have a a building that's relatively new, they've redone it, but they, they, it was an older building, and he kept the old communion table that was there, you know, one of those big wooden, like, square things with the big cross in the front, and he kept it, and he said, because I love the, kind of, the history of it, that it makes me feel like I'm joining with, you know, generations and generations before, and we're, we're joining at the table, and he said this interesting thing, he said, I'm just praying for transformation at the communion table, 
that there would be transformation there. And I said to him, you know, transformation happens because Jesus is here. And when Jesus is there, and it's a moment, God gives us a moment in communion to reflect and to, to, to examine our hearts. It's like a moment to make things right. If we've been ignoring something, if we've been putting it aside, it's a moment to say, I want to make things right. I want to make it right with God, and I want to make it right with my man, my brother or my sister. So I just hope that it also gives us that sense of seriousness. It's actually a, a wonderful moment, a reminder. Let's check our blind spots. Let's check um, where we need to make things right before we enter into communion. And God does a, a transforming work there. So with all that said, I pray that we keep looking for our blind spots, church. All right, we keep being humble about them and talking to each other about them. And I just want to open us with a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you for this moment. And for this opportunity to um, to be in your presence, Lord, and that you would be that that searching presence, Lord, that would seek search our hearts, Lord, and just make them right before you, whatever that means, Lord, whatever that involves, Lord. We we just bring ourselves wholly to you today, Lord. You gave yourself fully to us. This is the least we can do, Lord, to just bring ourselves fully to you today, as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to be talking about the last of the seven signs today. We are in the book of John. We are halfway, almost halfway through this Gospel of John. And the first half of the Gospel of John is called the book of signs, right? It's the signs that all point to the divinity of Jesus, pointing to him being the Son of God. And it's not surprising that there's been kind of a buildup as we've gone along. We started with, you know, a few jugs of water water into wine in a in a in a private party, right? And then we went into some healings, and then we got bigger when we did a whole, you know, Jesus multiplied a bunch of bread uh, for thousands of people. Last week, we talked about a man who was born blind and suddenly now could see an incredible miracle, and today we get the doozy. We get the big one. Jesus, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and so this is really a big one, and what we're going to see is three things from this incredible story. First, that Jesus has absolute control. Second, that Jesus was absolutely human. And third of all, that Jesus has absolute power, even over death. And so this is so exciting. I'm going to just jump right in. So let's just start with the first one, that Jesus has absolute control. If you're still wanting to read along, there's, there's handouts and printouts in the back. We're in John 11. And we're going to start in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, his sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that, the God, that God's son may be glorified through it. I hope you caught that. For God's glory wasn't the same thing said last week about the man born blind. It's for God's glory. The, sick, the healings, the miracles, the signs are for God's glory that he'd be lifted up. And so uh, we go on. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Now I'm going to skip ahead a few verses into verse uh, 14. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. 
So it's a ton of things to say about this little passage. We haven't even got to the miracle yet, but so many things to say. But the foremost one in my mind is that Jesus is in, is in absolute control of the situation. Did you notice that? I mean, the disciples at this point are seriously wondering about Jesus' sanity. Okay, they just came out of a horrendous situation in Jerusalem. Jesus was preaching around the temple. The Jewish leaders had been, um, you know, growing in animosity toward Jesus and getting more and more aggravated at him, trying to arrest him and seize him all the time. And here he is at the end of John 10. uh, Jesus makes some really startling statements. He says things like, I give my sheep eternal life. He gives people eternal life. He also says, I and the Father are one. And this is not good stuff as far as the leaders are concerned. This is, this is blasphemy. And what do they say to him? They, they pick up stones to stone him, and they say this in John 10, 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Blasphemy is punishable by death, full stop. They don't even have to have a trial. They can just pick up stones and start stoning him. And so Jesus basically had a bounty on his head. He was a wanted man. They were going to arrest and seize him and kill him the minute they could get their hands on him. And so now the disciples, think about the poor disciples, right? They're along with him. They're kind of like guilty by association, right? They're like, hey, uh, do you remember what happened in Jerusalem? And maybe they wouldn't get stoned for blasphemy, but they certainly could get arrested and punished and maybe get caught up in all of that. And so they actually did a smart thing, it would seem to me, in John 10.40. It says that Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Where was this? It was Bethany beyond the Jordan. So let's go to the, the map here so you can see where we are. There's two Bethanies, so this is a little confusing. Um, Bethany beyond the Jordan is where that arrow is pointing. So he, they left Jerusalem and went all the way across the Jordan River to the other side, out of Judea, to Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's nice and far away from all those angry Jewish leaders, right? They're getting out of there. Made sense, seemed wise. And then here we go into John 11, and what does Jesus say? Let's go back to Judea. (laughs) With all due respect, Jesus, do you remember what was happening there? Do you remember how big those stones were that were almost thrown at your head? And so Jesus, of course, um, says yes. Bethany, then when they go back, if you look at the second map, is just two miles from Jerusalem, very close. So he's going right back into the problem. He says, we're going back. And have you noticed this about Jesus? He's completely unafraid. He's not concerned in the slightest. This is remarkable. Just remember all the times the Jewish leaders tried to kill him. Um, in fact, it was kind of interesting because I put them all together in one, like, slide here, and it's kind of humorous to see how many times they tried to seize him. John 7.30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in John 7.44, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And then John 8.20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And finally, John 10.39, again... They tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. You see, Jesus is in complete control. He can go wherever he wants. He can go into Judea and back and forth and across the Jordan and back and forth. He can go straight into Jerusalem. He can go straight into the temple. He can go into the belly of the beast. And if it is not Jesus' will that he be seized, he will not be seized. Do you understand the control he has? 
It is absolutely the timing of his death, his life, everything he is doing is completely in his hands. And it's a sign of how much danger they believed they were in. If you look at this little comment from Thomas, which often gets overlooked, he makes a courageous statement. And I love the fact that this is the doubting Thomas. Everyone know who doubting Thomas is? He's the one who, after the resurrection, said, I'm not going to believe that he was raised until I see his hands and his feet, put my fingers in the holes. You know, he was the doubting. When we make fun of him, like we think he's a problem, I kind of, I get it. I'd be like that, I think. But, but here he is, well before that, having such courage, knowing that they're walking to their death. He says to the, his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. They're assuming they're going to die. They're walking right into a war zone. They're walking right in front of the bullets. And we have to respect Thomas for that resolve. He is an example for any who are called to dangerous work for Jesus, which some are, to say, if we perish, we perish, but we follow Jesus. Wherever he leads me, even into dangerous waters, we're going to go. But here's the thing. Thomas didn't fully understand the full control of Jesus. He did not understand that Jesus can walk into enemy fire and not be hit by any bullets. You understand? He's a little bit like Neo. Does anybody watch The Matrix? Anybody know The Matrix? And you know Neo? He's got so much, like, reflex and power or whatever he's got. And so that, you know, the, the, they do that thing where they slow-mo, and this bullet comes at him, and he slow-mos, and he goes like this, and the bullet, whoot, you know, goes right by him. That's like Jesus, right? I mean, he, there's no bullet that will hit him that he has not ordained for it to be there. That's the control of our Savior. He is in complete control. So there's a therefore here. Every one of these three facts about Jesus, I'm going to give you a therefore. And the therefore says, what does this mean to you and me here in 2022 in Greensboro, North Carolina? It means a lot. Jesus is in complete control, and therefore with every, with every that Jesus is in absolute control of our lives. He's in absolute control of everything in your life, and we can trust him. That's the truth. That's the therefore of this. This should deposit something in your heart right now. Are there things in your life when you're like, this just feels out of control? But Jesus is in control. He's taking care of things. He is in absolute control of every circumstance in your life. Think about all the circumstances you're worrying about, you're troubled about. He is in control of every circumstance. Say it for me. Jesus is in control. Say it. Let that resonate in your heart. When good times come, he's in control. He has, he has given his blessings. He pours out all good things we know come from him. But even when bad things come, when hard times come, he's not going to let them take you down. He is walking with you in it. He is right there with you. He's not surprised by it. There's nothing about your troubles that surprised him right now. He didn't send them to you, but he's not surprised. God's not surprised by cancer. He's not surprised by marital troubles. He's not surprised by your financial troubles. He's not surprised by addictions or other problems. He's not surprised by that. Nothing about that surprises him. He is right there in it with you. What about your life right now is a circumstance that you say, I just, I'm having a hard time trusting God with this. Once you say it in your heart, God's in control. He's in control. God is in control. And so we can entrust him, ourselves into his hands. We can walk into that situation and just rest in his presence. We can begin to listen for his voice. 
Say, Lord, direct me in this situation. I don't know what to do. I need the wisdom, like Mylene was talking about. I need wisdom for the situation. And I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to do what you're calling me to do, and I'm going to believe that you will take care of me, (laughs) and you will take care of my loved ones however you want to, that you are good. This is a confession for our hearts right now, and he will never let us go. And we might not get the outcome that we hope for. And that's the truth of life, right? We may not get the solution that we were hoping for, but what God promises is peace. He promises his presence. Let me read to you from Philippians 4, 5 to 7. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about everything. I want us to hear this in our hearts. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation. Somebody say every. Every situation. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me say this. I think for most of us, this is a new and radical way of living, to live in total trust in Jesus in everything. We say it and we sing it. (laughs) And then we go home and we see our checkbook or we have the problem with our spouse or we have whatever. And then we, the, all the worry sets in, right? We've forgotten how to just trust, to rest in his control over everything. I love that it's a little bit like a child taking their daddy's hand. I have a picture here. I just want you to see this picture. That child has not one single worry they're going to be hit by a car. Not one iota. They don't even understand the danger they're in. They're in more danger than they think, that child, right? But that child doesn't worry about any of it. Why? Because he's holding daddy's hand. And so he trusts him. And so I'm wondering this morning if there's any of us here that need to simply look up to their daddy and say, I trust you. Can I hold your hand through this situation? I trust you. And I just believe you're taking me through it. I don't see how. I don't even understand it. This child does not understand most of what's going on around them. They're too little. But their dad knows. And your dad knows what's going on in your life. Can we live like that with a childlike faith? Can you imagine what your life would be like if you could take hold of this in every situation? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to go to the second one. The second thing we see about this in this miracle is that Jesus is also absolutely human. And so here, let's read it from John 11, starting in verse 17. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, he w- she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Mary said to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have, Martha said to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's that question all through John. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. At this point, Martha goes to get Mary. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 32. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now, if you've been tracking with me through the book of John, you've been realizing that the whole point of the book of John and the signs that we show are to show the divinity of Jesus, right? That he has power over all things. He wasn't just a good man or a prophet, but he is the son of God, God in the flesh on this earth. That's been the whole point. So it's very interesting that here John takes just a very slight detour to remind us of another important theological truth, which is that also Jesus was fully man, fully man, absolutely human. We see here a troubled spirit. We see emotion. We see tears. If any man in this room thinks it's not manly to cry, I ask you to take that up with Jesus. Because he's a man and he cried. He wept. He wasn't ashamed to show his emotion. And so we have this beautiful truth that we have a Savior who is both fully God and fully man. Only such a one could save us mere humans from our sin. Only such a one could be our Savior, could be our Lord. And so let's talk about his crying for a minute because there's probably a question in some of your minds at least, which is a good question, which is why in the world was he crying if he knew that a minute later he was going to raise him from the dead? Like what's that all about? Did he not know till a second later he was going to do it or what? Like what's happening here? Um, clearly he knew he was going to raise Lazarus. He knew it before he even started traveling, right, to, to Bethany. So he knew he was going to do it. So he's not crying as over the fact he's never going to see Lazarus again. He knows that's not true. But we get a bit of a clue as to what's going on here with the words deeply moved. It says he was deeply moved. And that's actually kind of a weak translation. If you look at the word that was actually written in the Greek by John, it has a slightly different meaning. Where it is translated elsewhere, it is translated as sternly warned or scolded. It even means anger and indignation. So what's interesting is that Jesus was actually angry and troubled about something. So what was he angry and troubled about? The first thing, I think, is the suffering of his friends. Think about it. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were his best friends on earth. I know Jesus could be friends with anyone. <laughs> he was God, but he was human. And I have to imagine that there were certain people, just like for you, that he just clicked with. <laughs> they were his buddies. They got him, and he felt comfortable with them. Certainly we know they spent a lot of time together. Maybe they laughed over the same jokes. Maybe they liked the same food. Maybe they played games after dinner and they all enjoyed it. Who knows? We don't know. But we know that th he loved them. It says that so clearly. They were, they were his people, you know, his group. And now one of them is gone and the other two are absolutely shattered. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's harder to see someone you love suffer than it is to have the, own, the suffering on yourself. Do you understand that? You, you, you say to them, I'd rather be the one suffering than to watch you, my loved one, my child, my husband, my mother, whatever, suffer. I'd rather be the one to suffer. And so I really believe that's what's going on here, that Jesus saw their pain, and he's feeling the pain of his friends as if it were his own, that he's weeping with them, that he is suffering with them, that he sees their pain, and it hurts him deep down inside. That's the kind of compassionate Savior we have. How cool is that, that he feels your pain all the way down? 
And so the other thing I think that he is uh, angry and troubled about is the effects of sin and death on the world. Clearly, he is seeing right up front the effect of what Satan has done as he entered that first first pair of people on the earth and caused sin to start its trail down through the ages and all the pain and the suffering that has come as a result of that. And Jesus knows that more than anyone. He's the one who created the world in the first place, remember? So he's the creator. He created this world to be peaceful and good and, and, and full of life and love, and yet he's watching the, the enemy tear it down piece by piece by piece. I'd be angry too, and I'd be troubled. And so there's a righteous anger here. There's an outrage at what sin and death has done. And so Jesus broke down in tears. He wept over the sin and the brokenness of the world. He wept over the pain his loved ones were suffering and over the losses that are part of living just a human life. So that was why he cried. So we have a therefore coming. Therefore, what does it mean if Jesus is absolutely human? Therefore, he completely understands your humanity. He completely gets you. Okay, there's no one who gets you better. Uh, He gets everything about you. I sometimes think if he had been only divine, yes, I'm sure he could have understood what we were, but because he was human, he felt it with us. He really got it. It's like when you meet someone who has gone through the same suffering that you have, whether they've had the same kind of loss, like you get it. You look each other in the eyes and you say, I get it. He gets you. He gets exactly where you are, everything you're feeling. And I know we're in John, but I feel like the writer of Hebrews says this better than anybody, so I'm going to just read to you what it says here in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us or empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So that's the beauty of our faith, you guys. That's the beauty and the glory of our faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is completely divine, and he has all things in his hands, but at the same time, he was human, and so he can empathize with our weaknesses. He has felt it with us. He understands even our temptations. He has sorrowed. He's felt what we felt. So therefore, we can approach God's throne of grace with what? Confidence. With confidence. And what does this say we'll get? We're going to get grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. I don't know that there's any more beautiful passage in all of Scripture. It's right there for you. No matter where you are, what your need is, just, just approach the throne. Just go right up to Jesus. You don't have to go through any barriers. You don't have to go through any anyone, any priests, any pastors. You just go to him and go grab his hand like that little child and sit on his lap, and he understands no matter what you're going through. He doesn't He doesn't feel you're foolish for feeling the way you do. He's not looking down on you for your feelings. Whether you're strong or whether you're weak, he cries, he understands. So I just, I'm just so thankful that we have that kind of Savior. I just want us to take a minute, just right where you are, and just say thank you. We we did gratitude this morning, but thank you, God. That doesn't matter where we are, how messed up or all put together we are. But Jesus loves you. He is right here with you. He feels you. He gets you. Amen. Let's go to the third one, that Jesus has absolute power. 
Now we're finally going to get to the miracle. Let's get to the really, really good stuff. Here we go. The final sign of the book of signs in the book of John. John 11, starting on verse 38. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. She still doesn't quite get what's going on, right? I mean, she believes that he's <laughs> he can do anything, but she doesn't get what's about to happen. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? It's a word for us. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. <laughs> you don't get to see the glory of God before you believe. You've got to believe first, and then you see the glory of God. It's interesting. It's hitting me right now. So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. They believed. A resurrection. We should know John, the writer, by now to know that he saved the best for last. <laughs> He's been building up the signs to this one sign that, that proves that Jesus is God. Only God could do this thing. Only God could do this thing. And this miracle, rather than pointing back as the barley loaves, the multiplication of the barley loaves pointed back to the prophet Elisha and how Jesus was the prophet to come, now this actually points forward, right? Because we, we know the end of the story, right? <laughs> that, you know, just who would have guessed in that moment that a few weeks later he was going to be raising himself from the dead? It's a, pre, it's a precursor. It's a shadow of what was coming. And this miracle is kind of like the clue that you never got, <laughs> You didn't figure out, have you ever read a mystery novel? And you get all the way almost to the end, and you're like, I still have no idea who done it. Like, I got no idea. <laughs> I've been thinking about it and can't figure it out. I don't know who, who killed the butler in the pantry or whatever. Like, I don't know who did it. And then you get to the end, and you find out who did it. You go, oh, yeah. <laughs> and now suddenly you see all the clues, right, that you missed along the way that pointed to that person. It's a good writer for you. Well, this is what's happening here. They had no idea. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, then they knew. This was, he was just warming up here with Lazarus. He was just getting it started, just giving them a little clue to what was about to happen. This is who Jesus is. He's a resurrection God. And this resurrection of Lazarus was just a shadow of what was to come. I love the way D.A. Carson, who has a beautiful, wonderful commentary on John, I love how he puts it when he talks about comparing the two, the, the raising of Lazarus, the raising of Jesus. He says this, readers cannot help but compare the resurrection of Lazarus with the resurrection of Jesus, after which the linen strips were still present, but neatly folded up by themselves, separate from the linen. Remember, Jesus folded everything up and put it to the side. The differences of are a piece with the general New Testament witness to the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection. Lazarus was called to a restoration of mortal life. Small wonder he groped blindly for the exit and needed to be released from the grave clothes that bound him. Jesus instead rose with what Paul calls a spiritual body, leaving the grave clothes behind, materializing in closed rooms. Those who hear Jesus shout on the last day will participate in his resurrection, 
The resurrection of Lazarus occurring before that of Jesus could only be a pale anticipation of what was yet to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lazarus was raised to his mortal life, but he still died some years later. But when we are raised to life with Jesus, we will live forever. There will be no death. There will be no crying. There will be no mourning, no sadness. He raises us up to life with him. Hallelujah. So Jesus has absolute power over everything, over death. And so there's another therefore. Here's our last therefore. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me, church, today, that Jesus is the resurrection God? And it means that he can make you fully alive. It doesn't just mean that we'll be raised up on the last day, but it does mean that. Boy, that's an encouragement because we're all going to die someday. (laughs) Some of us are closer to it than others, but you know what? We're all going to go someday, and we can believe and know that we're going to be raised to life with him. Okay, so that's our confidence. That's our hope. But it also means that our God, who has absolute power, is here to make you fully alive today. Today. He wants to make you fully alive today, to lift you up out of your grave now. What does he say? Just a few verses before in John 10. We didn't talk about it, but here it is, John 10, 10. I have come. This is Jesus talking. He says, I have come that they. Who's they? Us. I have come that all of y'all, all y'all. <laughs> There's that little southern for you. All of us, every one of us, every one of us may have life and have it, what, to the full, full life. He wants to raise you to full life here, now, today. Hallelujah. And some of us may feel like there's no way. You have no idea what my life's like. We may feel very dead to certain things. I'm too old. I've, I'll never love again. I'll never do anything important for the kingdom. I'll never get over these addictions. I'll never get over this anxiety. I'll never get over this fear, this depression. We may feel like I'm just dead to that. Maybe we think we're too far gone. We've got too many issues. It's too hard, God. Um, too old, too young. Not gifted enough, not important enough. Maybe we've lost one job after another. Maybe we've messed up one relationship after another. Maybe there's been problem after problem. We just can't get our finances straight. So many things we feel like, yeah, no, uh, you know, that's dead in me. It's gone. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus wants to get you out of that grave. He wants to get you out of that grave. He wants to roll away the stone that is blocking you from the peace and the love and the life that he had planned for you, that he has planned for you right now. That's what he has for you. And so he just needs to roll away the stone. That's what he does. He rolls away the stone, and he calls you out, and he's calling you out of that grave. He's calling you by name, like he called Lazarus. He's saying, Marta, come out. St. John, come out. Say, Andy, come out. Lisa, come out. He's calling us out of the grave, out of whatever is holding us back. He's calling us out so that we can begin to live and life, live life to the full. Amen. And so this should build your faith. This should build your faith that you have a God who has absolute power. You know, we got the triple threat here in Jesus. He's got complete control. Complete control over time, circumstances, everything. He also has absolute humanity. So he understands you 100%. Your spouse might not really get you, but he gets you. Okay? Your best friend may not really get you, but Jesus gets you. Your mom may not get you, probably doesn't, but, but Jesus gets you. 
So he gets you. He has absolute humanity. And then third of all, he has absolute power over everything, over life and death and the grave. Anything that's holding you back, there is nothing he cannot do, nothing too hard for him. Let your faith be built up this morning, church. And so we're going to go into a time of ministry. I'm going to invite the team to come up. But as they do, I'm going to tell you one last story. Because when, when Jesus calls us out of the grave, the first thing he, time he calls us, it's to new life in him, right? It's to spiritual life. And that's a real thing. And he can do that for you today. You may feel like, I've never actually given my heart to Jesus, and I, I don't know what that means. You can go from death to life. And I got to watch this happen when I used to volunteer at the Hoving Home. It was a home for women with, um, with drug and alcohol problems. It was a residential home. They lived there. And I went and I w- taught a class there. And I used to watch the girls come in when they would just first come, all ages. And they'd come in, usually off the streets from jail. And I will say to you that for the most part, there, there was a deadness in their eyes. They were so broken, so in so much pain, and the, the eyes almost looked gray. And they would weep through my class because I was talking about, it was a parenting class, so you know they had to think about all the ways they messed up their kids, right? So they'd weep through the whole class. And there was just this, this hunched shoulder, this shame, the, the, the grayness in their eyes. And I got this incredible privilege of being able to watch what God would do. And as I would come back every couple weeks, so I got to see it in chunks, kind of, and I would watch as, first of all, light would glimmer. They'd start to, like, sit up a little straighter, and there'd be a little bit more. They wouldn't cry the whole class long. (laughs) They'd just cry for part of it. And then one day I would come, and it was like the light had come on. And like their eyes changed, literally changed. And there was kind of a hopefulness. There was a joy in them. And I would say to them, what happened to you this week? And they'd say, I found Jesus. I gave my heart to Jesus. That's what happened. And I saw it physically right in front of me. And their problems didn't go away. Oh, no, they had lots of problems still to deal with. Okay, lots of problems. But there was light on. Jesus had brought them from death to life. And so that's what God can do for you today. He can bring you from death to life. But it's not just for the first time you ask Jesus into your heart. Right now, today, some of you may be feeling dead and tired and worn out. Under the pile, discouraged. And Jesus wants to turn on that light for you. He wants to call you up out of that grave. I believe he wants to set some people free tonight, today, in this time. And so I want to just take a, just a moment. I want you to just close your eyes. And just invite Jesus into your circumstance, that Jesus who is in full control. I want you to invite Jesus into your emotions, your feelings, the pain, the tears, the fears. Just bring them to him. Let him hold you comfort you. And bring to them those places that feel dead, that feel hopeless. Say, Jesus, I know you've got the power over the grave. Roll away the stone, Lord. Roll away the stone. I believe that you can roll away the stone. 
teams to come on up. You're welcome to come up and be prayed for. We're just going to take another minute just to let Jesus just minister faith and encouragement and hope to your heart. Freedom, Lord. Freedom. Freedom. We're not bound by any stones in front of our hearts right now. We just roll them away. We get them out of there. And if we can't, we just ask Jesus, get, get the stone away. Start to confess in your heart, he is good. God is good. God is in control. God is all power. Thank you for freedom.